Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Uh, my name is Bruce Lashan, and I'm a reporter uh, at WUSA 9, the CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C., I cover a little bit of everything, but I've covered a lot of crime in my day, going back 25 years. This week on True Crime Chronicles, we travel to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It is here that one of the world's top universities for the education of the deaf and hard of hearing is located. Gallaudet is the premier American university for the deaf and the hard of hearing. And it's really, it's like Harvard, Princeton, and the Brookings Institution all rolled into one. It is a place that is central in deaf culture. All across the country, the deaf community looks to Gallaudet as the place where they can be themselves, where they can be natural, where they can no longer be a minority, but they're actually the majority. They're with their friends and their community. And it's so important uh, in the hearts and minds of deaf people all across the country and all across the world. It's September of the year 2000. The 99-acre campus is bustling as the new school year kicks off. But this year is memorable for all the wrong reasons. There's this vision that the deaf community is, there's probably a prejudice that the deaf community is immune to crime. Uh, it's, it's a prejudice that thinks of the deaf as being somehow uh, innocent. Uh, but that's not the case. The deaf community faces the same challenges uh, that the larger community faces. There's crime in the deaf community just like there's crime in the broader community. There are murders in the deaf community just like there are murders in the broader community. Over the next six months, there would be two murders that terrify everyone on campus, an investigation that makes several mistakes, and a subsequent trial unlike any we have covered before. Eric Plunkett was a freshman. He was 19 years old. He was a creative, curious young man. He had just joined uh, the Lambda Society at Gallaudet. Although Eric was seemingly thriving on campus, he reported to the university that someone had been harassing him. He had gone to the college administration at some point to counselors and asked what should happen if someone's being uh, bullied uh, because of their sexual orientation. There was a lot of concern, actually, in the gay community at Gallaudet about bullying and harassment. Police get a call from one of the dorms on campus. There is a strange smell coming from Eric Plunkett's room. In September of 2000, his body is found. He's been beaten. Uh, there are bruises around his neck. He's bloody. He's found there uh, in his dorm room 
beaten to death. And that set off a real panic in the community about what was going on. Police begin looking at those closest to him. There was a guy that was pretty quickly arrested by DC police detectives, a guy named Thomas Minch. Minch was another student at Gallaudet, one who knew Eric well. Who police said had confessed, but on further examination, it turned out that what he had confessed to is simply pushing Eric Plunkett. But that was enough for a detective to stop the interview midstream and arrest and charge Thomas Minch with Eric Plunkett's murder. The next day, the U.S. Attorney's Office looks at these charges against Thomas Minch and decides that there's not enough evidence there. They don't really have the goods on Thomas Minch. He didn't confess uh, in the interview room, in the interrogation room to the murder of Eric Plunkett. No, all he had confessed to was pushing Eric Plunkett. And so the prosecutor said, there's not enough here. And he was released and let go. He didn't go back to the Gallaudet. Uh, Minch went home to New Hampshire. And many people at Gallaudet for many long months believed that Thomas Minch had murdered Eric Plunkett. And the DC police continued to suggest to media sources that that Thomas Minch was good for the murder of Plunkett, uh, but there just wasn't enough evidence there. As rumors run rampant, and with investigators still convinced Minch killed Eric Plunkett, the unthinkable happens. Another student is killed on campus. So this is a five-alarm fire. Benjamin Varner is found beaten and stabbed in his room, another 19-year-old at Gallaudet. Uh, he's been stabbed 17 times. People quickly realize it couldn't possibly be Thomas Minch who committed the murder of Eric Plunkett, Plunkett because Thomas Minch was in New Hampshire when Benjamin Varner was murdered. So it couldn't be him. Police investigate and it goes back, they go back and it turns out that the original detectives that had looked into this case had missed the most obvious thing. A third student named Joseph Mesa Jr. was the one who had alerted campus authorities and police after the first victim, Eric Plunkett, had been killed. He had said that he smelled some odd odor emanating from Eric Plunkett's room. And when they went and checked, they found Eric Plunkett dead in the room. But instead of just doing the most kind of cursory basic check on Joseph Mesa Jr., the police immediately settled on Thomas Minch. But if they had gone back and looked at Joseph Mesa Jr., he had been in a previous situation in which he had admitted stealing $3,000 from another student. But police didn't do that kind of basic check that is usually done in detective work. You know, you go back and you look at all the connections and you look into the backgrounds of people and you talk to their friends and friend, friends of friends. And you particularly look at the person who alerts you to a crime. Police didn't do that. They settled on Thomas Minch without even checking Joseph Mesa. Stealing money is a far cry from murder. 
but police begin looking further into Mace's whereabouts at the time of both crimes. You know, one of the basic things that homicide detectives do is they go back and look at bank records because a lot of crimes are motivated by money. And so they're looking through Varner's bank records and they see that this check has been cashed on his account for $650 and it's cashed after Varner is dead. They go back and they look at the videotape, the surveillance tape from the bank, and there is Joseph Mesa Jr. cashing the check for $650. So then they have Joseph Mesa stealing money from Benjamin Varner, and Joseph Mesa is the same guy that discovered Eric Plunkett's body. So now it looks like he's good for both murders. Police arrest Joseph Mesa and begin asking him questions about both Eric Plunkett and Benjamin Varner. Joseph Mesa admitted to police during a confession that he had gone in and wrapped his arm around the neck of Eric Plunkett, who had cerebral palsy, and Mesa figured he would be an easy target. And then he picked up a chair that was in Plunkett's room and he beat him on the ground over and over and over with the chair until he was dead. That's how Eric Plunkett died. A few minutes later, he also admits to the second on-campus murder. Benjamin Varner had been stabbed 17 times. It was a horrific scene in that dorm room. And Mesa later admitted that he went to the room intending to steal money from Benjamin Varner. And he noticed a paring knife, a small knife, under the microwave in Benjamin Varner's room. And he knew that Varner would be a tougher kill than Plunkett because he was a bigger guy and he didn't have cerebral palsy. And so he grabbed that knife and stabbed Varner over and over again 17 times until he was dead. Joseph Mesa Jr. is charged with murder and pleads insanity, detailing that he was told to kill. Bruce covered the trial and its bizarre entirety. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm just more gullible than the average person, uh, even after covering so many trials, but I actually listened and, 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 and was halfway convinced by his testimony about his insanity. And what he testified to was that he had not voices in his head, but black leather clad gloves in his mind. And those gloves were directing him to kill people. And the gloves belonged to this pro wrestler, a guy named The Undertaker, as if that's not macabre enough. And he said that The Undertaker told him to murder Plunkett. And The Undertaker told him to murder Varner. The prosecution doesn't buy it and quickly responds with evidence that Mason knew exactly what he was doing when he committed the two murders. It turned out there was a critical uh, series of letters that Mesa had written to his girlfriend. And in those letters, he actually said that he planned to pretend 
that he was crazy in hopes of getting off of these charges. And there was a great deal of argument in the court, in the court um, behind the scenes about the admissibility of those letters. And uh, Mesa's lawyers argued that they should be inadmissible. And the prosecutors said that we have to admit these letters. And the judge sided with the prosecutors. And that actually went up on appeal. And that was what they appealed, that um, the judge should not have admitted the letters to his girlfriend. And even on appeal, they lost that case. And the appeals court ruled that the letters were admissible. And in those letters, and this was key, uh, Mesa said he planned to pretend that he was crazy. Later, several jury members revealed just how critical these letters were in their decision-making. When the trial was over, the jury foreman said that the jurors might have been swayed by Mesa's arguments that he was crazy, but that that letter to his girlfriend in which he said he planted to pretend that he was insane weighed heavily with the jury. It would have made a difference to them if there hadn't been this letter saying that he planned to fake insanity. The trial concludes, and the jury is ready to read their judgment. So I was there in the courtroom when he was found guilty of these two horrible murders. And I watched, I, I, I was in the front row, as I recall. And you try and crane your neck around, trying to see his face, trying to get some sense of what he's doing. And what was so odd is there wasn't any reaction at all. They said he was guilty, guilty of these horrific crimes, and he didn't react at all. At sentencing, he's given the most severe penalty that DC can impose, life without parole, two life without parole terms. No reaction at all from Mesa. Psychiatrists testified that he was a serial killer in the making. The prosecutor said he was a serial killer in the making. The counselors who interviewed him said he found the murders gratifying as if it was an end in and of itself. He was a man, according to the prosecutor, who would have kept killing and killing and killing if they hadn't discovered him. He was a man who at the hearing on the stand testified that the undertaker, this pro wrestler that he had visions of, had told him to murder the prosecutor himself. And the prosecutor said, well, you can control yourself when the undertaker is telling you to murder me. You can control yourself now, but you didn't control yourself when you murdered Plunkett and Varner, did you? And Mesa's response was, I haven't killed you yet. During the sentencing hearing, Mesa apologizes to the families, saying that his victims will forever be in his memory. The prosecution brings in further testimony to present Mesa as someone who should spend the rest of his life in prison. You hear a lot about serial killers taking their anger out on pets. And it turned out, and it was introduced at the penalty phase of the trial, that 
Mesa had a history of violence towards animals. He admitted to counselors, and they testified on the stand, that he had beaten to death a cat when he was a teenager, a pet cat. And not only did he kill the cat, but he killed all the kittens that the cat had as well as a teenager. And that is clearly a sign, the mental health workers said, of someone who is on the road to becoming a serial killer, uh, a killer who, who takes their fantasies and turns them into reality. He had these dreams of violence but he actually carried them out. And what is in some ways so sickening about this is that he killed these two young men for money. That was it. All he wanted was some cash. Typically, beating somebody to death or stabbing them to death is a crime of anger and passion. You know, you you don't commit such intimate violence at close range usually just for money. You usually commit, when you see those kinds of crimes, they're committed because someone is terribly angry about some horrible violation. But in these cases, it wasn't about some terrible thing that these two young men had done to Mesa. It was just that he wanted their cash. And he used their credit cards and he cashed bad checks on their accounts uh, so that he could uh, go out and, and pursue what he wanted, you know, the little things that he could buy with whatever money he could take from them. And he had a pattern of it. He had done it before. You know, he had stolen $3,000 from another student uh, who luckily he didn't harm in any other way before that. And you kind of wonder if maybe they had taken that first case more seriously if perhaps Plunkett and Varner might still be alive and Minch might not have been subjected to something that ruined his college career. Minch left the university and never returned. He uh, actually filed a um, a wrongful arrest case against the D.C. police because of their shoddy work in arresting him. And he lost the initial civil case that went after uh, the conviction of Mesa. But on appeal, the appeals court justice said, that's right, he was wrongfully arrested and you subjected him to terrible trauma. So you wonder what the impact has been on Thomas Minch's life for the rest of his life, in addition to the horrible deaths of Plunkett and Varner. Joseph Mesa Jr. was sentenced to six life terms without the possibility of parole. He is serving his sentence in a maximum security prison in Atwater, California. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, Reed Redmond here, joined by Spencer Brudig. Our esteemed third co-host, Will, is out this week, but he'll be joining us as usual again next week. And Spencer, this is... 
a fascinating story and a heartbreaking story. And and one element that I was particularly interested in asking you about is a trial in sign language. I've I've never witnessed something like that. Does it look? I assume it 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 looks different than a typical trial. Yeah, I I know that was one of the uh, the later questions I asked of Bruce Lashan, um, our reporter for this episode, was you know what was that like covering this? Uh, I I had in my head that maybe it was going to be a lot more silent or take a lot longer, but Bruce said that it really wasn't any different um, when Joseph Mesa was giving his testimony or when someone that spoke was giving testimony, they had sign language interpreters both ways. So uh, there was really no lag time in communication, but I'm sure it looked quite different. The other thing that's just so interesting to think about is, you know, when when people are uh, pleading insanity or, or people that are mentally ill, sometimes they will say that they hear voices in their head, right? But in this case, someone that does not hear, he sees sign language in his head. And he was claiming to see these black gloves telling him in sign language to commit murder. And that is just such an interesting psychological fact about this case that I've never heard um, or, or seen before. Right. It makes sense. People think in, in different ways, whereas... You know, I think in terms of speech patterns that, that folks who are deaf and, and speak sign language would think in terms of, of signing. And not to be overlooked, this really terrified the deaf community because there were there was potential that someone was, you know, targeting them. Um, and, and this really uh, was quite frightening for Gallaudet as a university, especially because these murders were being committed on campus in a dorm room where you would think, you know, the security is high. How do you get in? Um, and, and this really... Uh, you know, shook the university and its and its population to its core. And not to mention that there is this window of time between the two murders when someone else was arrested for the first murder and you have this whole broader university community that's shaken and then all of a sudden there's this assurance that, oh, hey, the, the murderer might not be on the loose anymore. We've arrested this guy. And then all of a sudden to have this second murder happen and realize that there's a killer out there, I, I just can't imagine that had to be really terrifying for the whole university. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, it, it does beg the question, uh, you know, if if police had done m- more diligent um, investigation, could Benjamin Varner still be alive today? It's an interesting thing to think about. The other thing that's so scary is when that second murder occurred in February and people kind of had it in their heads, hey, this is the guy that did it. He's he is loose. He was released. He is loose, but he's in New Hampshire. And all of a sudden, it's not him. It can't be him. He has an alibi. He is at home in New Hampshire. Uh, I can't imagine the days following that second murder, how how crazy that must have been for everyone on campus, and especially in the dorm room. And to bring this back to the trial, Bruce Lashan talked about this a little bit, but this obviously wasn't a case of whether Mesa killed these two people or not, but whether or not he could be held accountable for it, could be convicted of murder and it sounds like really the key piece of evidence at trial was those letters that he wrote to his girlfriend. You know, because he had confessed to both murders, uh, it, this was not a case over whether he did it or not. It was going to be whether he uh, was going to be tried as a sane adult. Um, and Bruce, as Bruce says in the episode, he was really, um, he really, he really took to. Mace's testimony that he was a depressed person that wasn't able to communicate, that felt as an outsider and, and uh, you know, was unfit to stand trial as a sane person. And um, these letters where he wrote his girlfriend essentially saying that he was going to fake insanity 
uh, was the linchpin for this entire case. Uh, and, and they were able to get that approved for uh, the trial and, and uh, he was convicted because those letters were so powerful in essentially combating the idea that he was insane, in his own words. Spencer Bridding, thanks as always, and thanks to Bruce Lashan at WSA for bringing us this story. Spencer, if folks are interested in discussing this case or any of the other cases that we cover, where should they go? Yeah, we have a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault. Uh, it has about 6,000 members, and uh, we look forward to uh, discussing this case and other cases like it with you on that platform. And of course, we have a new episode of True Crime Chronicles every Monday. You're going to want to make sure you're subscribed to or following the show in whatever podcast app you use. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.